This conversation is one I am super excited to share with you all. Today's guest has been a major inspiration to me personally. We're so lucky in this generation to have access to the ideas of people all across the world. And sometimes these ideas provide us the inspiration that help us realize that our ideas aren't crazy and the visions of what we create, want to create in the world are possible. Many of you who have been listening to this podcast regularly know that I started my own journey rejecting business and coming across thinkers and authors who are voicing the belief that business could be different, that it didn't need to be a source of destruction to our planet and people, but in fact it could even be the solution, maybe it could even help us heal the world. This was a real game changer for me in my life. Today's guest, Jonathan Fields, is one of these people. (laughs) He is a lifelong entrepreneur. He's built businesses created from love and a desire to serve the world. Coming across his work made me believe that I too could create a business that didn't conflict with the values that I love and hold dear. And that belief is really what sustained me through the entrepreneurial roller coaster (laughs) that has led me to where I am today and has played a crucial part in the formation of Sanya's foundations. Jonathan is a best-selling author of multiple books, but in today's episode, we're going to explore some topics more closely related to his latest work, Sparked. Sparked is a book which brings together two of my own favorite fields, business and self-development. Sparked is a manual, you can say, for helping us discover our unique imprint for work that makes us come alive. And the best part is it also includes archetypes, which I think you all know that I am very passionate about and interested in. I really enjoyed this podcast because Jonathan has a beautiful way of expressing his ideas and I'm sure that you'll get some inspiring pieces of wisdom that will help you along your own go within journey. As always, I thank you for tuning in and for supporting our work at Sanya, which is all about finding deeper levels of health, happiness and well-being through finding a deeper connection with ourselves. My name is Yasmin and here is this episode with Jonathan Fields. So thanks for making time for this. Welcome to the Go Within podcast. Um, Super grateful to have the chance to dissect um, a little bit of your journey, Jonathan, because This podcast, obviously by name, Go Within Podcast, is all about the inner journey. And me personally, I've been very inspired by a lot of your work down the line. And I always felt, sort of as a consumer of your content, that there was a depth to the inner journey and the place that you were communicating from. So I'd really love to just jump in kind of at the beginning and sort of what sparked you to shift the center of gravity of your awareness from the outer world, which we're kind of more prone to, to realizing that there was an inner journey. Mm. I like how you start with like a really light, easy question. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a great question, you know. It's funny because I've been thinking about it in different terms um, recently. And I was sort of wondering, you know, like, because I, I have this recollection of really being deeply fascinated by my own and other people's inner lives um, and inner thoughts and thought processes. And um, really for my entire adult life, and I was remembering that when I was in college, I came really close to being a psychology major. And actually um, I was really fascinated with performance psychology. Like how do people actually devote themselves to a pursuit that's going to take a lot of energy, a fierce amount of effort, 
very often a lot of suffering over a long period of time in the name of accomplishing something that was astonishing in their mind. And, um, and I was trying to, to remember why I walked away from that. And I couldn't because I'm still so fascinated by that to this day. Um, but I know the seeds, you know, for me were planted at least, you know, in my late teens, early twenties, all the way back then. And, um, you know, I also had, I had really interesting role models in my parents in that my dad was um, a psychology professor, but he didn't teach a ton. He actually ran a research lab for his entire career. He was, he was a guy who had one job um, and which, you know, like our generation, that's almost this bizarre, unheard of thing now. Um, but he literally taught, you know, in a university and ran his lab for, I think, 50 years. And he researched the human learning process and he was and is to this day madly passionate about the pursuit. And I could see that, you know, he chose to devote himself to this thing, which lit him up. Um, and then my mom on the, the opposite side um, was an artisan, a craft person. Uh, she was a potter when when I was a kid. And, and over her life, she's sort of iterated through all sorts of different, you know, versions of that. Um, she is now... Um, she has been going deep into the world of beading, working, like doing these stunning, intricate beadwork pieces of art that take months and months to do. And and she, again, was somebody who knew that there was something that, that was an impulse within her that made gave her that feeling that she so loved to feel, and she would vanish into that space. And I watched her say yes to that, too, and become really good at it. Um, so there was... You know, in in my home growing up, the, the, these really interesting models that were showing me that um, there's an inner whisper that we can all tune into and that we can then, if we choose to, find ways to devote ourselves to that. Um, and I think a lot of it was really just modeled to me. And, and And maybe that's why I have trouble identifying when these seeds took root, because I think in some way, shape or form, an awareness of people making choices, an awareness of an inner driver for effort, for contribution, for relationships has always been just a part of my experience in life. Um, but for sure, you know, it, it's taken center stage in my professional life. And a lot of that, I think, um, you could probably trace back to 9-11, um, where I was a New Yorker, um, and I was in the city and uh, was married um, with a three-month-old baby in new home and had just signed a six-year lease for a floor in a building to open what I hoped would be a yoga center in New York City. Um, I know you know uh, variations of like what it's like even in the best of circumstances to be on the verge of signing something like that and about to build something. You know, and even the, when the world is at its best place, it's still t- slightly terrifying. Um for me, I woke up to, to 9-11 the next morning. Um, and you know, there, uh, was just a city that was my city that was in the most horrific place. Um, and, and I knew somebody who didn't come home that day and it really made me re-examine the, the assumptions that I made about life. Um, and really reflect on the notion that we were never made any promises and that, you know, 3,000 people didn't go to work that day expecting not to come home, and yet that's exactly what happened. And and I wanted to make the best use of my time, and a lot of that was, I realized, deepening into these questions around 
what does it mean to live a good life? Um, you know, like how do you build relationships that are deep and rich and matter? How do you invest yourself in work, whether it's a thing you get paid to do or just the thing that you're, you know, is your primary role or devotion in a way that it, it gives you a feeling of meaning and purpose and makes you come alive. You know, how do you take care of your physical and mental well-being in a way that, that enriches your life and maybe the lives of other, those around you? And it's been a through line. I think really 9-11 was a really big, while, while it's, it, these questions have been present my entire life, that moment 20 years ago was a, was a catalyzing moment for me to really turn it into a central part of my work life. That was a real. That was a really long-winded answer. Sorry about that. <laughs> There's like so much we could explore there. It's like trying to choose which which way to go. But I, it's funny because I was actually going to ask you like whether any kind of big spiritual challenges along the way. Because I find when we kind of turn our gaze inwards, it's not always a smooth journey. And I, I guess it's not even supposed to be. Like we're supposed to be challenged. Would you say that that was kind of the first? big challenge or were there other things along the way that even got you to that point because you were you were also a lawyer I was point, yeah right? and, and and that was for sure another big moment for me and there was a really big challenge in that context I was I was a lawyer and nobody who knew me before that could ever understand why I chose that path because um, <laughs> I, I was somebody who was very somatically oriented for my entire life I, I trained um, year-round as a competitive gymnast for the first 18 years of my life um, and was fascinated by mind, body, movement, wellness, and went to college and couldn't really, I, I, I also, um, have a longstanding passion for entrepreneurship. Um, so I was building things when I was a little kid. I always had my own businesses. I built the first business that I sold when I was in college. And when I came out, I realized that I had spent a whole lot of time not going to class and actually enjoying myself and also building a company <laughs> and, I was really intellectually curious about what I was capable of. And I thought after taking some time off and um, just working, law school would both equip me to function at a high level, no matter what my career choice would be, and also really test me. So I said yes to that. And then um, I was fortunate. I worked really hard. I did really well and had opportunity presented to me when I graduated. And and then I found myself about four years into my career um, stepping into a new position at one of the largest law firms in the world in one of their largest offices in New York City where the expectation is that you would perform at, you know, an almost inhuman level, uh, you know, as close to perfect um, while working somewhere around 80 to 100 hours a week. Um, and you were paid for that, you know. Essentially, this was the deal that you made stepping into it. And and I was super excited about the challenge for that, even though I kind of had a pretty strong sense that this might not be the right path for me at this moment in time. So I said yes to that. And within a matter of a few days in that firm, I was put on a deal where we had about three weeks or so to pull off this giant, complicated public offering in a foreign country. And literally the day after that, the investment laws would change and the whole thing would be shut down if we couldn't make it happen. So, you know, teams at different law firms and investment bankers and we're all working around the clock and brutal levels of stress. The stakes couldn't be higher. And I just put my head down. You know, I was the young person on the team. I needed to prove myself. And as we headed towards the end of that deal, um, there was this 
way that you would close deals back then where all of the teams would converge on the printer's office where you would effectively live for the last two or three days and you're just printing thousands of pages of documents and vetting and negotiating final deal points and crossing them out and and you're trying to get to the final thing before the deadline hits where you can sort of like finalize it, hit a button, submit it to the federal agency, the SEC, and be done with it. So we're in that process and and I start to feel this pain just in the middle of my body. Um, but I kind of figured I would just breathe through it. And, you know, like everyone was just doing the thing that they had to do. And with every hour, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. By the time we hit the final day, I could barely breathe. I was doubled over. I could barely see straight. I knew something was really wrong. Um, but I also was committed to doing the job I was hired to do and to proving that I was worthy of being in that room so I ignored it. I ignored all of the signals of my mind falling apart, my body falling apart, and I just put my head down and did the work. And we finally, we did the deal. We hit the deadline. Everything gets blurry in the hours after that because I was in this very altered reality. I go home. Um, I either passed out or just fell asleep for a couple of hours. I woke up in excruciating pain took a cab over to my doctor who saw me immediately and did a quick exam, turned a little bit white and um, said there's a large mass in the middle of your body that wasn't there um, not too long ago when we did your physical. He whisked me down the hall to an infectious disease specialist. Within hours, I'm checked into the hospital and in emergency surgery because it turns out, they, they still don't know exactly what happened, but the the idea or the guess was that I had had a, some level of infection brewing in my body for quite some time and the stress and the overwork and the relentlessness of the job just cratered whatever was left of my immune system that was fighting it and then this thing blossomed into this massive um, pelvic abscess, basically a baseball size infection that ate a hole through my intestines from the outside in. So I went into emergency surgery, thankfully. You know, it was a success. I recovered fully. It took a couple of weeks. And then I went back to the office, you know. But when I went back, I was changed. You know, that was a wake-up call. When your body rejects your choices about your career, at some point you have to listen or else it's going to keep taking you to your knees. And that was my moment. So I knew, even though I went back, I knew I wasn't long for that particular path. Um, and I just started asking myself the question, what would I do with my life um, that I think I would really enjoy doing if I could also figure out how to make a family-worthy living in New York City, which is no easy feat. Um, and that mattered to me. I was at a point in my life where I didn't want to really go backwards. I didn't want to live hand to mouth. I didn't want to start over. Um, and yet in a really odd way, I did exactly that because... I stayed for the better part of my next year because I start to realize that I was going to go back into the world of entrepreneurship and be a founder and I wanted to do it in the fitness world. And I had to figure out what was working and what wasn't so that I could figure out how to make a better mousetrap. And that was going to require me to actually start at the most fundamental point of service. So I ended up saving a whole bunch of money, realizing I was going to take a financial hit. And then um, talking my way into a job as a personal trainer in a fancy little studio on the Upper East Side of Manhattan where I got paid $12 an hour 
um, which was a big departure from, you know, like multi-thousand dollar suits and a nice six-figure income and a powerful, prestigious business. And it took, it was a big hit to my ego and I had to really breathe through that and I keep reminding myself why I was doing this. And at the end of the day, I start to realize what a blessing that I was getting paid anything to effectively be trained in an entirely new industry and to learn, you know, from the ground up what was working and what wasn't. Um, so, and, and that, you know, that eventually led to me opening my own facility and then, um, but that moment was another one of those really giant inciting moments for me that brought me back, not willfully, um, but literally like my body basically said, you will listen now. Um, and, uh, and I started to follow that thread finally. I actually never knew that that part of your life story. It's super fascinating. And it's reminding me of the, the title of Gabor Mate's book. I don't know if you've heard of it, when the body says no. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, yep. I'm done. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and like, I always love to hear people kind of relate stories to entrepreneurship, which have that part of humbling the ego down, because I think we're, we're so used to associating success with the opposite of like, you know, fake it till you make it and, and, you know, all of that, that kind of stuff. It always touches my heart when I, when I hear stories like that. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, there's, there's so many things I actually want to explore with you about, like your your fitness business, just because I, I think a lot of people have this wish to make the thing that they love to do their their source of income. And it is such a challenge um, to, to bridge that gap and, and make what you love actually be able to support you. Um, I know myself from starting Sanya in the past five years, like it was such a challenge, especially for the first three years. Like it's such heavy lifting and it can be so dispiriting. And it's really hard to kind of keep the stamina and, and keep going till you get to like, for us, it took, it took you know, four years before we, I could take a breath. <laughs> um, and I always share with people how ironically I started a wellness business and I got super burnt out doing it because it, it was so stressful. Like, I wonder if there's anything like you'd like to share um, as briefly or as long as you'd like kind of about that process and if there's any insights that you glean that, that could help people facing that kind of question. Yeah, and, and I'm not, I, I think most entrepreneurs who actually get through that initial window share some version of a similar story. It's, it's so hard. You know, the, I think most people... Um, Maybe not most people, but a lot of people who are contemplating stepping into like creating their own business, um, especially if you haven't done it before in some way, shape, or form, or been involved on a team that's been doing it, um, there's a certain amount of delusion that tends to go along with it. And I'm raising my hand. I like I'm right there with that delusion, and, and I have been a number of times over. As much as I've done this and gone through it now, and on the one hand, it's good because if you really knew how hard it was going to be before you said yes to it, a lot of founders would never actually do it and the world would miss out on some truly incredible things. But at the same time, um, that level of delusion can also lead to a fairly high level of sustained suffering um, because you keep not seeing the world as it is. You keep refusing to to read the signals and you keep you know, you hold on to this illusion of the way that things should be and the way you want them to be. And, you know, it, it is really this sort of double-edged sword. 
it's on you know partly the thing that pushes you through, um, but it's also um, partly the thing that leads to so much suffering. Um, and at some point, you know, the venture and the market will bring you back to reality. It's just the way it is. And whether you hit that point with grace or whether you hit that point with brutality, most often it's a violent ping-ponging between the two. You know, you don't really avoid either. You know, um, at some point you have to kind of stay optimistic and stay on the side of possibility but also acknowledge the reality of, you know, what's going on around you. You have to acknowledge the fact that you went into it with certain assumptions. I'm going to have a whole bunch of freedom. I'm going to build something that allows me to live the life I want to live. I'm going to work five hours a day and play. I'm going to walk into my restaurant and everyone will say, oh, look, it's you. Thank you for creating this amazing blessing of a place. And I'll go and hobnob with the people at the table or I'm going to be the yoga teacher who's adored by thousands and it'll be so easy and I'll have this perfect staff that runs the center and always shows up on time. And I can go on vacation for two months with my family if I want and lie on the beach. And, you know, maybe someday if you really stay with it, you, you, you get to a point where you've earned your way into pieces of that. But the journey, especially the early part, like you said, the first like two to five years, it's really, really hard. And increasingly, I believe that it's actually important to own the fact that this is very likely going to be the journey. And instead of stepping into a place of just delusional optimism, step into a place of grounded optimism um, and also really think about all the, you know, all the potential things that might come in to the experience that you don't want to happen, that you didn't see coming, that might trip you up or cause all sorts of you know, required pivots. Um, anticipate them. And instead of relying on, you know, like the fuel of delusion, um, get really, really, really clear on your why. You know, like, why did you say yes to this in the first place? Um, because at the end of the day, when the delusion falls away, when reality crashes into your vision, it's the why. It's, it's getting really, really clear on why you said yes to this in the first place and whether you believe deep down that thing you said yes to is still possible. That's the thing that sustains you through it. You know, at some point the delusion always ends. Um, so in my mind, you know, I want to get just, I want to really, really, really focus on why this matters to me. Try and get as realistic as possible and ask myself, if all of this happens, is my, my reason why still meaningful enough that I would say yes to it all? Um, because that will prepare me for it in a very different way. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to remove all those stumbles and all those, you know, unseen challenges. It just means you're going to step into them differently. Um, I mean, I'm curious because I know we've had similar journeys in a lot of different ways. What do you, I'm curious what your take is on that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree, right? It's like finding that thing that's worth suffering for. Um, for me at Sanya, I, I definitely hit that point where I was like, can I actually make this happen? Like there was a point we were losing money and I was just thinking to myself, like, I was calculating how much I'd need to increase our sales by to just get to the break even. And I was just thinking like, how am I going to do this? Um, luckily, I'm really hard-headed. <laughs> but I was like, 
was like, I broke it down. I was like, yes, I could do it this way. Um, and probably the way we hit it was completely different to how I was planning back then. Um, but I, I did know that the vision was worth suffering for. And I did have a belief that, that I could do it. Yeah, I mean, that, that phrase, like what is worth suffering for, I think we, especially with a Western mindset, we tend to really run from phrasing like that. Um, and yet that tends to be the reality, you know, um, all too often. It's funny, Mark Manson, you know, like in his sort of like classic book that everyone started you know, like using the F word in their titles after his book. But one of the really big things that he wrote about was, you know, like focus less on like what you really want and desire, but focus on like, what are you willing to endure? Like, what are you, what, what suffering are you willing to say yes to because you, you know, what's on the other side of it is so meaningful to you. And I think it's a really powerful meditation. Yeah. I think something that helped me also was just making peace with the failure of it. Like I kept visualizing how my life would be if I went bankrupt and thinking like, could I pick myself up the day after and, and still live a good life? And I felt that I could. So that kind of helped me extract my identity out of the success or failure of my business. And that really helped me see clearly and be able to take decisions in a little bit of a, you know, spacier way, which I think is, it's really interesting because as I shared with you, I've um, recently become the CEO of my dad's company. And it's, it's the first time that I've been running a company, which I didn't found, because I founded all of the companies that I've ever worked for. And it's so interesting to lead a company with the dispassion that comes from not being a founder of it. Um, and it's, it's, it really kind of fascinates me how as an entrepreneur, our identities become quite enmeshed. And I have to say that without kind of my spiritual practice and, and all of the things that help me do my ego work and, and you know, really work with those identities, I think I would, I'd have found it very difficult to do that. Mm. Yeah, that is so interesting. Um, I'm just trying to think. I've never actually done that. As similar to you, every company that I've run, I found it. <laughs> um, so I've always created the culture. I've always, you know, like built the the team. I've always, um, but it is like to step into an environment where it's existed for a long time before you. Um, yeah, that's got to be such a fascinating thing. And yet, when you look at almost every company that sustains for a really long time and grows to a certain level of scale, it's, it's, it's often pretty rare that the founder is the one who is still leading that company, you know, like years and years down the road, because at some point the, the thing that drives many founders, um, very often ceases to exist in a level, um, in a mature company that will continue to fuel that, what, you know, that, that deeper impulse for the founder. Um, and they, either stay on and start to break things left and right because their impulse is to just constantly create and make new things even when it doesn't need it or they move on, you know, and then sort of like a, a, a new management team steps in that's looking at it differently and is wired differently, is wired for systems and process and scale and, and all that other stuff. It, it, it's a really interesting um, sort of like evolution. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited to see how you, you serve. I, when we have this conversation yeah. again in five years, I'm like, I'm so curious to hear what your experience is going to be. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's been a wild ride already, even just the kind of year I've been involved with the business. Um, and it's interesting you said that because my dad's actually kind of an exception to that rule. Like he, he ran the company for 35 years. Yeah. 
Um, I guess it's a bit of a different business because in the software business, you're constantly having to recreate. Um, and in fact, most software companies don't manage to kind of transition from one generation to another, but they constantly did. So I guess he had that outlet to keep creating new things, um, which is quite interesting. But I think it, it leads us perfectly into kind of one of the main things that I wanted to talk to you about, which was this division between the wellness world and the corporate world. Um, I think we both have kind of a, a foot in each world. And this is why, you know, I find your book like super fascinating and, and also something very needed and needed message. Because I feel like we have this image of the corporate world and we all uphold it, even though deep down there are so many people who feel like it doesn't need to be this way. And, you know, in the wake of kind of the great resignation post-COVID, where so many people have felt, you know, is the corporate world, is my job really fulfilling me? Is it really giving me that which I need to design the life that I love? Um, in the wake of that, I think it's really great to ask the question, like, why are we as human beings kind of upholding like the corporate world is us like human beings we're all wired the same we all have the same like needs for actualization yet somehow like we're okay with it outside the corporate door and then as soon as we go into the corporate door we're like okay no now it's the corporate world and we all have to act different even though secretly we're all saying like it doesn't have to be this way um, and this is why I love obviously the, the subject of your book and, and a lot of the things you've been working on even prior to Sparked have I remember the, the Conscious Business um, Collective and the words that you spoke, that video that you had done um, when you expressed, um, you were expressing like that project really touched me because it was really that call to adventure of like, hey, the corporate world doesn't need to be this way. Business can be conscious. Um, so I really would love your thoughts on like, why is there this divide? Why are we upholding it? And how the hell are we going to tear it down? Uh, I think it's being torn down as we speak, like whether, you know, like <laughs> whether the paradigm wants to or not, like you use that phrase, the great resignation, you know, and the, the reason so many people are using it now is because millions of people are saying no more. Um, and it's interesting, like if you try and figure, a lot of people have tried to figure out, you know, like why is the... Why is the world of work the way it is? Um, and, and granted, like we should say up front, there are exceptions. There are people in organizations and you know who are doing it differently and really breaking the mold and trying to reimagine it. But but I've been thinking a lot about that also, and I've been asked a lot about it. Um, and had conversations with some leadership teams, and my sense is this: um, I feel like for generations, organizations were built around a particular purpose, and that was to provide value to the shareholders, to provide value to the clients, um, to provide value potentially to the vendors, and on rare occasion to provide value to society at large. The one thing they were almost never structured to do was to provide value to the very people who made the organization's life possible, which are the employees. You know, it's just that the the central reason for the existence of an organization was never looked at as, you know, to serve as a conduit for the meaningful expression of the individuals within it and for their own evolution and growth and development and flourishing. That just was never part of the conversation. You know, you were effectively cogs in a machine that were working both for security, for benefits, for a paycheck, which is awesome, which is really needed, right? 
Um, but at the end of the day, the ultimate goal was um, not your own individual flourishing, but it was to maximize shareholder value for the shareholders and the owners um, and to provide value for the clients, for the customers. Um, and that's all being turned upside down right now, you know, because if that's done in a way where there's also a simultaneous investment in the individuals within the firm, within the company, well, that's awesome. And like I said, there are some standouts and there there has have been some companies that are sort of like, oh, no, actually, we need to do this. You know, we need to, to legitimately be on lip service, take care of our people. And that means investing in their own individual process of growth and evolution. And if in that process, that even means that they realize that they're not in the right place and they leave, that's actually okay because we want them to leave so we can get the person where the, it is the right place now. But that's a really rare example. But this moment um, is is forcing a reexamination because people are leaving and they're not coming back and they're leaving without anything to go to. That's how much pain they're in. And at all levels, people who are sort of frontline workers who may be working at minimum wage level, who've endured all sorts of really awfulness in the context of the work, right up to the C-suites. I know, you know, like in my orbit, a number of, you know, like C-level executives who have recently left without another job lined up. Um, so it's a really interesting phenomenon that's affecting literally every level within companies. And I think the big signal is the way we were doing things, it's just, it's, it's not enough for an individual to just show up anymore and expect a paycheck. They certainly don't expect security anymore. That's been off the table for a long time. You know, that was a generation ago where that was a part of the promise. It's been gone for a really long time. Nobody assumes that anymore. So it came down to like a paycheck and benefits and maybe you get really lucky and you align the work that you do with something that actually you enjoy doing and it fills you up. But there's never, there's not a lot of emphasis on process and, and education that would help you find that alignment and help you understand how to orient yourself with an organization to feel that way. And there's very little emphasis on investing in the personal development of the people in an organization beyond skilling them to perform at a higher level at their job so that you can then generate more revenue from their effort. You know, that's, you know, that has been sort of like the approach to investing in education um, rather than what if we actually help this person learn how to flourish as a human being and make better choices so that they can actually align themselves in a way where like they're showing up and saying yes to things that make them come alive and no to things that don't so that they start to perform at an exceptional level because they're literally doing the thing they can't not do. The friction drops away. The need for extrinsic motivation drops away. The you know like the idea of like trying to figure out how to artificially construct ways to retain them drops away because they never want to leave. So industry is being forced to look at this now in a way that certainly hasn't existed in my lifetime. Um, and I'm fascinated by how different companies are responding. Some are just kind of like no like we're going back to the way things were as quickly as humanly possible. And if you're not on board with that, leave. And guess what? Everyone's leaving. (laughs) 
So like their bluff is being called for the first time ever and they don't know what to do about it rather than saying, look, um, you have, we have just awakened to something um, profound and powerful. And if we step into this moment, acknowledging that and acknowledging that we can all do better and acknowledging that we need to invest in our people and, and, and in their ability to, to rediscover their own humanity and step into it and build lives around it, those organizations in my mind, those are the ones that are going to lead the next generation of work. Um, so I'm sort of like scanning constantly and trying to see who's doing that, who's saying yes to that. Um, and, and how can I sort of like learn from what they're doing? And maybe if there's a way for me to participate in it, how can I play a role in helping that as well? I'm giving you these really long-winded answers today. Sorry about that. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit fired up around this topic unless in case you hadn't, hadn't noticed that. Yeah, well, they're, they're deep topics which require, you know, that, that kind of depth to address. And I mean, it's just like music to my ears, really, because I, I really feel the same very passionately. And when I started my first business, which was a catering business, I I felt that um, the, the people I wanted to... I started my journey into entrepreneurship in the very cheesy, like, I want to save the world, you know, kind of thing. And I... I very early on realized that it was much easier for me to touch my employees than my customers because the interaction I was having with my customers was short they would come in they would buy their lunch some of them would stay and chat many of them wouldn't you'd get to know a handful but the the, the team were, were with me all day every day so it was so much easier to kind of impart my values and, and share my soul with the people that were in my team so I, I was very much experimenting. I, I didn't really have any template, um, which is why when I came across work like yours um, and some other authors out there, it was like, okay, I'm not the only crazy one. Like, this is a thing. Um, and it's something that stayed with me throughout the businesses that I built. And I, I've always had very intimate relationships with the people that, that work for, for my companies. Um, and now it's a completely, as I said, different situation where I'm you know, stepping into a, a team of 65 people, some of them have been with the company for you know close to 20 years. So there's a very established culture. Um, and we've also had one of the highest turnovers. The company has historically very low turnover. Um, and since COVID began, the turnover rate really shot up. Uh, and it's, it's been so interesting for me to kind of come in and try to bring some of these values, exactly as you were saying, to make people have the opportunity to grow and personally develop through their work, even in skills completely unrelated to their job. Um, it's a lot harder when you have such a big team, right? Like there are some people who I literally haven't met in person yet um, because of obviously the remote work and all that. And um, it's been very, very beautiful for me to, to do my trial and error and, and explore ways that I can kind of mold the culture around and the values that I feel are going to be the best for the people. But then also, obviously, um, the way you treat your employees is the way your employees are going to treat your clients at the end of the day. So I do believe it's it's kind of the fastest route to, to create a great client experience. Um, I think one thing that really struck me was just how much more open people are than I thought they would be because of this sort of, again, the label of, of kind of the corporate world. Mm-hmm. I think everything you talk about in your book and and you know, the, the kind of conscious business principles in general, they're so human and they're so core to who we are. 
that when they're communicated in a in an easy way it's just like a no-brainer like aha moment of like yes <laughs> why wouldn't we want this in the workspace yeah and and yet if you have you know a couple of generations of people in a workforce that have given their lives very often to the company with a certain expectation and a certain set of promises and they've they've sacrificed and they've given up a whole lot of things and now they're in a place of senior management in a company and they've surrendered so much based on these promises and now they feel like they're just starting to cash in on these promises and to do the things that we're talking about doing means effectively like a a a you know a sea of creative destruction and reimagining it's completely understandable why that person would not want to do it why they felt like you know look i've given everything based on promises that the things are going to be as they were you know and that the culture is going to be what it is and that i'm entitled to sort of like a certain paradigm to you know like for to finish off my days here um so on the one hand, you can rail against sort of like senior management or leadership for not wanting to embrace change. But, you know, the truth is it's a very human and understandable reaction. And if you were them, like if you come at it from the yogic standpoint, right, from a, a point of empathy and compassion, you look at what is, what are the behaviors and choices and things that they have said yes to and things that they have suffered in the name of being where they are. And with the assumption and expectation that things will sustain this way because that's part of the promise they made and this is part of the payoff. It's completely understandable to see why there would be resistance to, to totally dismantling this at this point. You know, so I think you know, there's a middle ground where we've also, rather than just raging and saying we need to tear this machine down, you know, like let's actually have a human conversation the same way that we want to be treated as human beings. You know, like, let's actually look at the journey and the experience of those who have risen up and created a culture and a paradigm that we feel is not what we want, but yet let's look at their experience and, and why they're doing what they're doing and how they got there. And, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge um, the, the the experiences of all sides in the conversation or else you end up just sort of like, you know, like having this battle where like, you know, like fists keep hitting against fists and and there's a lot of violence and brutality but nothing ever changes and there's there's never any understanding or evolution yeah <clears throat> totally it's funny that you gave that example because um one of the things that i did quite early on in my journey as as the ceo of, of this new company was i flattened the management structure so we did actually have um you know key people in leadership positions who had been there for you know over 10 years who are now sort of, they'd worked up to this position as one of five and now suddenly they're one of, of 13. Um, but it was, and it's funny because um, one of the directors of the company was sort of, you know, quite worried about this and, and feeling like maybe, you know, this is really going to upset the apple cart. And, and there was a lot of fear towards making the change. Um, but I think for me, it was about kind of changing the measure of success because a lot of companies success is about oh I've made it to the management team or I've made it to the C-suite and I think that really harms our ability to actually enjoy our work because first of all some of us are not made to be in in management positions and and if the success in a company is based on on that kind of journey then it's actually very demoralizing um, and sometimes you know, you end up with people completely in the wrong role, just, 
you know, for that kind of sake of that um, label of, of what success is. And it was really funny for us because, you know, I had that moment of doubt, like, oh my God, am I doing the right thing? If this is going to, you know, cause so much tension. But all of the people in that team, you know, when we kind of contextualize, like, okay, what does, what do these people want out of their work? Like, what do we, what kind of company do we want to create? Like, why are we even flattening the company in the first place? And made it more about kind of the workplace that we want to be, as opposed to these traditional measures of success. It actually became very smooth. Um, and again, that's kind of like a reflection of, of the message of your book, right? Like when we're doing the work that makes us feel alive, it doesn't matter what title we have or even what our remuneration might be. It's just we're kind of in that flow state. Um, and that's it's such a great place to be. And obviously, as the leader of a company, that's exactly where you where you want your, your team to be. Yeah, it's so interesting that you, how you referenced um in almost every company, the only way to grow within the company is to grow into management, you know, which so often takes people away from doing the very thing that brought them to an organization and the thing that they actually love doing. And they may actually have no interest in managing other people and not be good at it and not want to get good at it yet. If that's the only way to grow within a company, that's the choice that they have to make or else they go somewhere else. I was, I was talking to a friend of mine um, who has been a multi-time chief people officer in a number of different tech companies um, and a number of them who've then gone on to either go public or be acquired by, you know, like massive tech companies. And, um, and this friend was saying to me that, you know, like um, they recognize that this was an issue, especially with people on the developer side, like on, you know, like the coding side and the engineering side. And they would create opportunities, I, I think called like a, what was the phrase they used? Um, 10x engineers, where effectively they would let somebody stay as like, keep doing an engineer, devote yourself to becoming astonishingly good at it. And, and you will literally get to a point where you can do 10 times what a newbie engineer can do and um, at a much higher level. And your compensation is going to also be 10 times what it was. So you're going to be compensated as if you had risen up in management. Um, but because we know that you love to do this thing and you're capable of like when you when you're when you say yes to doing it when we support you in doing it you are going to to invest in growth and become so good that you'll be untouchable um why wouldn't we compensate you at an extraordinary level because we're we're all really happy when that happens like there doesn't have to be this this singular path to an evolution in a company where it's like the only way to grow is to, to move into management. And I think, I, I thought that was a really interesting example of creating these alternative paths where people can stay there for decades and become astonishing and contribute at an incredible level and do the thing that they love to do and be really well compensated for it. For sure. And I mean, when you think about the 10 archetypes that you've um, kind of, um, I don't know what word to use, because it's like, I feel like you've distilled them from like a whole load of kind of body of knowledge out there. And I happen to be very interested in archetypes. Um, but when you think about it, like very few of them are actually kind of management skill sets. So it is, it is really ironic that that is the way that we choose to judge the success of our, of our people when actually the archetypes are mostly expressing a kind of vocation, which is not always leadership based. 
In fact, probably it's like one or two of them, right? That are. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely so they all fall along a spectrum of being what I would call process satisfied and service satisfied, um, and. There of the ten, probably three or four are very, very heavily process satisfied, and then there's another three or four that are right in the middle. Where depending on the individual, like they could be very process satisfied or very service satisfied, and then on the other end of the spectrum, where it's just like purely in service of, there are maybe two or three. So yeah, you know, a, the the majority of it is going like being able to devote yourself to process and mastery within that process is going to be a big part of what satisfies you. Um, and, and that's completely okay if you're given the opportunity to devote yourself in that way. Yeah, I, I just love kind of the use of your archetypes to kind of bring this message in that like, find that thing which sparks you, right? Like which, which gets you into that state where you feel so alive with your work. Like, I know you've, you're a student of, you know, the inner self and performance, but, but was there like something specific that made you use the archetypes as a tool to give this understanding? Yeah, you know, there probably was. Um, so I've been exposed to a lot of ideas and like from my own experiments, my own work, um, having built my own companies and worked with and mentored you know, at this and taught thousands of people at this point. Um, and that's ideas from deeply spiritual domain, from Buddhism um, to Eastern thought and philosophy to theology to positive psychology, social sciences, industrial research. And I feel like everything had pieces to offer. But on the research side, it was very often um, very not the easiest thing to tease out. Um, it was very theoretical and not super easy for just an average individual to deconstruct and apply. And on the spiritual side, it was very often loaded up with dogma. Um, and you had to buy into a, a certain system of beliefs in order to gain access to the process and the teachings. And rather than just having a simple, straightforward set of ideas and tools that anyone could just play with and experiment with and either intuitively self-validate or not. And I started to wonder, you know, are there an identifiable, mappable set of impulses for effort, for work that makes us come alive. Because if there were, and I could identify them and then build a tool that would help people figure them out, it would just, it would take so much angst out of the process. You know, it doesn't get you all the way to like, this is the job that I should have, but it gives you, it gives you a lot of information that will then allow you to run much more intentional and focused experiments, you know, to see how does this actually show up in the world, in my day-to-day -day life. Um, so I started to literally just like look at lists of like giant lists of jobs and roles and titles and industries and deconstruct and ask myself, you know, like, what are the fundamental, like, what are the essential pieces of the puzzle here? Like, what are the essential elements of effort that keep showing up in these different things? And it distilled down to those 10 impulses. And once I, I saw what these impulses for effort were, then I started to realize that each one of them kind of, it's... It, not always, but almost always shows up with this identifiable set of behaviors and tendencies and preferences that build around the impulse to form archetypes. And that's really cool because if you can identify that, then not only can you help a person understand what is this deeper impulse in me, but then you can also understand how does this impulse 
lead me to relate to other people, lead me to make decisions, lead me to all these different ways that I move through the world so that you can understand yourself in a much richer level, a much more nuanced level. Um, I had no idea if I'd be able to identify any of these um, up front and they've certainly evolved and been teased out. You know, like you and I met, I think originally when I was really, really, really early in this work and tell me if I remember this right. Like we were all sitting around a table and I'd shared it with you. I think this was you um, and, and the group of people that we were with and asked you to take, I think it was a beta version probably of the very early assessment. And then my recollection is you kind of all, I, I asked you what, what the results were and you were like, no, you go around the table and tell us what you, what you <laughs> yes. think it was. And I was mortified because I was like, oh man, it's so early, this body of work. I have like no idea. And I, I didn't know like, you know, any of you all that well, we'd spent some time together. Um, and it's, it's, it's amazing to me to see how much deeper and richer and more detailed the body of work has, has become since then. Yeah, I feel privileged to have kind of seen the idea at the start because it, it was a while ago, like you've put a lot of time and effort into like, you didn't just kind of get this idea and, you know, plop it into a book. You you really are a student of the self and you've taken a lot of time to really devote yourself to, to bringing this in the most um, like uh, integrity form that, that you could, um, which it's, it's really beautiful to see that. Um, and that's why my personal experience of it is that it's a really super helpful tool to help each person get that self-understanding. Um, I really love the phrase by Simon Sinek, which is the title of one of his um, YouTube videos, which says, if you don't know people, you don't know business. Um, and I think it's such a beautiful um, way for leaders to think about the inner world, but also for individual people um, because obviously if we don't know ourselves and how on earth are we going to be able to interact and, and actually create a life that we love. Um, but it's not always easy, as you said, to find things that can actually bring us that self-understanding. It's so hard to see ourselves <laughs> um, and it's not that easy to find mentors that we can trust. So having a mirror, which in this case is the archetype to kind of be able to like, oh, um, especially the, the anti-spark type is really interesting because that's, again, kind of seeing maybe the, the parts of yourself that are a bit harder to, to sense, like those things that I don't like doing or that I'm not good at doing. And uh, that part really fascinates me. And to be able to, to have that mirror to bring us into that um, space of self-understanding. This idea that business and self-understanding go well together, I think, is an idea whose time has definitely come. Um, I'm conscious of the time, but I, I want to ask you one thing. Um, spirituality and business, because that's like a whole other level, like wellness and business, personal development and business, we're getting there. Um, for me, spirituality has actually played a really big part in me being a better entrepreneur. Um, I don't know what your experience is that of if you've had anything that you'd like to share about it. Yeah, I, I think it probably depends how you would define the word spirituality. Um, I think everybody defines it in their own way. Um, to me, there's a lot of overlap because, you know, business is um, a manifest expression of my beliefs, my values, my identity, my impulses for work that made me come alive. Um, 
And all of those things are also a part of my lens on the world. They're part of my spiritual being, my spiritual practice. Um, so I've had the amazing opportunity over the years to become friends with a guy named Dave Evans, who was one of the early employees at Apple, left with his then boss um, to, they split off and co-founded Electronic Arts, which is one of the biggest gaming companies in the world. Um, you know, astonishingly successful guy, brilliant, 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 started out as an engineer, um, eventually um, left and started consulting and then left that and now actually um, teaches uh, a class um, at Stanford on effectively uh, taking human-centered design um, or design thinking and applying it to designing a life worth living. Um, Dave was an, an intensely, like I said, he's brilliant, trained as an engineer, so intensely logical, linear guy. In his adult life, he went back and he got his um, uh, graduate degree in divinity um, because he, he, he kept bumping into these things that said, this thing called life and this thing called work, it's just like the thing that bounds it and informs it so that we, I can flourish as a human being is, is its connection to something bigger. And I cannot conceive of this being okay without that. And he wanted to understand that um, on a much deeper level. And, um, and he, he's, a, he's a devout person. It's really funny because his co-professor of that same class at Stanford is an avowed atheist. <laughs> um, and yet they have these fantastic, rich conversations, like deeply intellectual, emotional, spiritual conversations. Um, and... So for me, spirituality is not necessarily connected to any specific um, faith, like defined faith tradition or set of dogma or teachings or dharma. Um, um, it's more just a, a certain sensibility that I am, I participate in something bigger than me. Um, I benefit from it and I'm responsible to it. And what I do affects this bigger ecosystem and how it exists affects me as well. And that we all participate in this thing, whether we know it or not. Um, you know, th that to me on its most basic level, sort of like how I experience it. Um, and you know, if you want to wrap around any particular religion or faith or set of rules or practices, you know, people are going to sort of do that in their own, um, way. But, um, I tend to sort of have a, a, a more, a less defined approach, but I do feel like for sure it guides it guides the way I move through the world and that, that, and, you know, it can't help but affect the choices I make about business choices about, yeah, I make about people. Um, it's just, it's just kind of like a, a part of me. So it's like, I can't turn that off when it comes to, when I like step into a boardroom or when I step into a business or work conversation, I can't take that hat off. It's just the lens, a part of the lens that, you know, I see the world with. It was a super graceful answer to a very challenging question that I just threw on you there in the last moment. So thank you for that. It's really, really beautiful way that you expressed that. Um, thank you, Jonathan. Um, uh, I'm going to respect your time and like close the podcast off here, even though I could easily talk to you for another couple of hours about um, all of this juicy stuff. Um, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in and obviously... I super recommend you all to take the Sparkotype test to figure out, to, to, to help you use this as a tool um, to 
get you in touch with the work that really makes you passionate. Um, probably you would do a, a better um, job of kind of explaining it in a concise way, Jonathan. I don't know if you'd like to, to, to share yourself where people can find more information about the Sparkotype test and your book. Yeah, sure. So you can find the, um, the test. It's just at sparkotype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E.com. Even if you forget the E in the middle, you'll still get to our website because we own the misspelling of it too. As we learn, more people misspell it than spell it properly. Um, the assessment is entirely available to anyone. You can take it for free and get your results. And the book Sparked is available pretty much at booksellers all over the place. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's been really, really beautiful having you. Mm. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for inviting me.